Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? I am doing very well. Uh, it's interesting because we just spent most of the week together. Uh-huh. And yeah. then we, we come reunited again on the weekend to... Uh, Remind me what happened. Oh, yeah. We were, remember, <laughs> we were in a trial all week. Um, oh, that's right. Well, and it didn't, didn't reach its now. conclusion, unfortunately, um, for a number of reasons. We're not going to talk about the case name, the defendant's name, or even the jurisdiction that it was in. But uh, speaking in terms of some perhaps hypotheticals or otherwise not commenting on a pending case, I mean, I can say, I think we can say that this has been rescheduled because of a, a mistrial that occurred. So I wanted to talk about some of the very interesting issues that came up that ultimately led to a mistrial in this case. And a lot of it has to do with what we've talked about many times on the show before, and that is the general category of prosecutorial misconduct. And as a subset subset of that, what, what a prosecutor's obligations are in light of the different uh, resources and burdens of proof that exists because as you know, John, the defense has no burden of proof unless an affirmative defense is being mounted. Mm-hmm, true. And most cases don't involve an affirmative defense. And for, for our listeners, you've heard us talk about affirmative defenses before, but it's a kind of a rare exception to the general rule that the state always bears the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt on every element of any offense that's charged. But let's say we have a situation such as self-defense, which we saw, of course, in the Rittenhouse case, and not so well played out in a couple of other cases that have recently received national Mm -hmm. attention. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and as we talked about many times, uh, self-defense requires that the defense at least raise the issue. And then there's these shifting burdens that occur depending upon how the facts support that. The other thing is, if somebody wants to posit an alibi, there are certain things that the defense has to do in order to provide the other side notice and things like that. But almost always, like 99% of the time, uh, the burden is entirely on the prosecution. And there's very good reason for that. So, John, why don't you tell folks um, about this this issue? Again, we're speaking in hypotheticals here, you know, not naming names just yet. We'll maybe do that after the case is over, which I'm sure you're, you'd love to do. But um, <laughs> and we will. <laughs> the general idea, because one of the issues that came up hypothetically is that let's say a prosecutor comes into information that is critical to the case. And and I don't care if it's maybe you can comment on the difference, I suppose, if it's critical to the defense in terms of it being exculpatory evidence or if it's something that the prosecutor suddenly believes is the linchpin to their theory of prosecution. Well, so we'll start with some of the basics. Um, <clears throat> there's two bodies of law that govern what must be disclosed to the defense. And um, the, the, the whole concept is to avoid trial by ambush, you know, late, late surprises, you know, withholding things that they know that the defense could use to, in, in their, in their defense. <clears throat> so um, there's a statute 
And if you want to look it up, it's 971.23 in Wisconsin. And But every state has a, a discovery statute. And it goes both ways. There's discovery responsibilities on the defense side, too. So things like all the recorded statements of witnesses that they intend to use, all the expert reports that they intend to use, or a summary, you know, if not a report, then a summary of what their testimony is going to be. But there's also, and I this is more widely um, uh, throwing the net on discovery, and that is two, mainly two, but there's others, um, Supreme Court cases. One is Brady versus Maryland. And the other is um, Kylie versus Kyles versus Whitley. <clears throat> now, Brady just says exculpatory, that is helpful to the defense, evidence must be turned over. The catch, of course, is who's in charge of the evidence. Well, the prosecutor is. So they make the decision about what they think is exculpatory. So that's the whole set of problems. But Kyles was even more forceful and important, I think, because Often the defense, um, or I shouldn't use the term defense, the, the state will um, uh, defend not turning things over by saying, well, we didn't have it. Some police agency had it. They never, we never, it was yeah. never in our possession and control. And the Supreme Court of the United States said very clearly that, hey, listen, <laughs> you have to turn over everything to defense. And if there's things in other agencies or things that you can get, you have to go get them. Right. That's what that's what Kyles versus Whitley talks about is that you can't just hide behind the fact that yeah. we oh, we don't have them in our actual file. And here's the thing. If they know that some information, and I'm going to use that term information rather than because one issue that came up again right. hypothetically was that they had deliberately not generated a report, okay? right? So, if they're if they're aware of information, um, they're the ones that are equipped. By the way, with pretty much unlimited resources, I say the only limit on that is the number of personnel that are in all of the law enforcement agencies, all of the many people that work in the DA's office, uh, along with their support staff, and the various other things that our taxpayer dollars pay for. So. Right. To the extent that, well, we're dealing with probably, you know, millions of dollars, conservatively speaking, on what could be spent, theoretically, mm -hmm. in pursuing that type of thing. The defense doesn't receive, you know, very often funding for that kind of thing unless the court specifically authorizes it. And, of course, that requires disclosure of some of your defense theory and other things that, that often interfere with truly keeping the burden of proof where it should be on the prosecution. So if I could just, I'm not going to go too far astray, but this is a very important um, point, And that is that the, the uh, power and um, resource differential between the state and defense. And you and I, before we um, luckily became partners, um, we were just kind of on our own for a couple of decades, right? Right. And, and that was fine. You know, I mean, you know, but um, imagine even a very smart, very capable lawyer of which not everybody is, but just imagine that a very smart, very capable lawyer is going up against a district attorney who has the advantages of a police force to turn to 
a crime lab to turn to, a uh, you know any number of other agencies that they could turn to, federal agencies, you know, and, and they can say, <clears throat> hey, can you um, analyze these, uh, go to the FBI and say, can you give me um, uh, a, a report on these phones and where they were at certain times? And, and they will. Mm-hmm. Um, or they go to the crime lab, you know, hey, we need DNA, we need fingerprints, we need, you know, um, uh, other kind of blood testing, whatever it is. They have, you know, tool mark examinations. We need you to process this car. You know, what? It, you know, the, the list is endless. And what does the defense have? Well, we can get an investigator and go try and talk to the state's witnesses who can tell us to buzz off and not talk to us. Which they do. Which they do. <laughs> and we have... That is our only thing we can, we can hire our own experts, but again, resources, our clients well, then, can't afford those. And John, don't forget this. This always dawns on me. Let's say I'm a defendant and who took evidence from my house uh, as part of a search warrant or got my, I mean, they've got the evidence. They took the evidence. They took mm-hmm. the stuff. They have it in their possession, you know, so, and that's all part of the, that law enforcement function. So, so, you know, when people watch shows, um, about the FBI or the DEA, you know, whatever it is, you know, the law and order and all that nonsense. And they're, of course, just, you know, theatrically silly um, from a real life standpoint. But, and I shouldn't say that too much because my son works on some of those shows. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, um, uh, but even he would admit the silliness of them. But, but they create a cheering squad throughout the country and probably the world for, you know, um, all these resources to be had by the police. And of course they always make it seem like the police are behind the eight ball because they're outgunned, you know, it's sort of a flip <laughs> on their head. And so it's, it's, um, it's, it's laughable to create that narrative, but you know, the narrative is created. Um, but anyway, I didn't want to get too far afield and I know yeah, we're we are coming up on the bumper here. So but then we'll get back into the whole discovery process and it will make more sense in the context that I just laid out. Very, very good. All right. We'll be back right after these messages. We are back with more legal defense from Kirk and John. Oh, those commercials were just delightful. You know what? I, yeah. I am going to go on and buy everything yeah. right after the show. <laughs> right after the show. It, it never gets old. We always say this. <laughs> you know, we're like, you know, like typical dad jokesters where we tell the same jokes over and over and over and over. Right. You know, or, or the same stories. Cause my dad, my get, son, they get less funny with age and my son you know, is like, tend to repeat them. So I'll say to him, I'll say, um, uh, did I ever tell you about, you know, fill in the blank. And he goes, um, yeah, dad, uh, lots of times, <laughs> lots of times, <laughs> like 10 minutes. Ago. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I have a bad habit of always prefacing what I'm about to say or any joke that I'm going to make with stop me. If you've heard this one, you know, <laughs> I, I think that's kind of a dad thing too. You know, you, you get yeah. to a certain age where you just can't keep track of, well, you know, I to. think it's just an evolutionary process where <laughs> if you've been a father for a while, that you're just going to do that. You have no <laughs> control or choice in the matter. Am I right? You're all right. It's, <laughs> it's, and it's a thing. It's not, it has nothing to do with like your brain slowing down. My, no, my no. brain's getting quicker by the day, you know, but 
it's just, you know, you have every dad has an arsenal of, you know, zingers that they, and sometimes you try and go back and revive some of the old ones and, and then you're yeah, just not yeah. sure, you know, then it's one of the greatest hits. And, yeah, yeah. The greatest hits and kind of confuses things like, uh, uh, so anyway, we, we laid out the power resource differential, but then we were in the middle of talking about, and we also laid out, you know, what discovery is required um, and now we should talk about like how seriously this is taken. Yeah. You know, by prosecuting agencies. Sure. And I think that, you know, as you mentioned, Brady versus Maryland is the basic rule that, and this is, it should be a no brainer. Like in the, in the differential of power and resources, obviously if the state comes into possession that they, and they have an additional obligation on top of the defense when it comes to their role in the process. Very few people realize this, but as you know, John, I was a prosecutor actually right. for right. a couple I of years. You. I know, I, I know. You. I'm still doing my, uh, my helpers <laughs> in my. That's a little different. I was in the military. So, so many rosary, you know, hail Marys or whatever. But um, the, the, there is a basic rule of ethics in every jurisdiction uh, that requires a prosecutor to quote seek justice and not just a conviction, and what that's meant to embody, it's it's part of this rule in Brady versus Maryland and Correct. Kyle's versus Whitley, is mm-hmm. that as an officer of the court and also a uh, what's the term that we see a you know an administrator of quote unquote justice um, and also considered. Quote law enforcement officers. Yeah, yeah. Prosecutors I mean, I are literally <laughs> have badges. That's true, and they they like to point that out when it's convenient for them, but but they'll deny that when it's not right. Like, oh, not our fault. We're just no, 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 not us. Oh, somebody else has that. But the point is that you know they they're the ones. Look at it this way: if it was a football game, they're the ones that would pick where the game is played, how the you know what the ball, they're going to bring the ball and they're going to bring all the players and they say, Hey, show up for this football game. It's up to the defense to put together based on what we think they're going to do to put our own team together. But mm-hmm. they bring the ball and they bring the referees and they bring the, the equipment and they decide where the game is played. So when, but very importantly here, and this is something that I remember back when I was a prosecutor and it's something that we experience frequently. It, it's one of those things where it's in the eye of the beholder, right? Now, Brady versus Maryland, it should be very clear when something's clearly exculpatory. But as you can see, and this is something that happened in this case, hypothetical case that we're not really talking about, but are talking about, um, that the prosecutor who who holds this information uh, is advocating for a conviction. And I remember this feeling that, oh, well, you know, this is what we're going to do. The reason we're going to do this is because of A, B, and C. Sometimes it's that you don't want the defense to uh, be messing with the evidence or you don't trust them to, you know, interpret it the right way, or you want to have control over what, you know, if there's going to be potential problems in your case, but it's all based on this general idea that um, a DA prosecuting a case has a belief that the person's guilty. Because if ever they were to say, gee, I don't think he's guilty, or I don't think I can prove my case beyond a reasonable doubt, and I shouldn't say he, I mean, he or she or they um, are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, then yes, they're supposed to like drop the case. But when you're preparing for trial, and you're an advocate for a particular position, it's so easy 
to convince yourself that you do believe beyond a reasonable doubt in the person's guilt. I mean, it's just, it's, it's part just of as, just as we fall, we come up with a theory of defense and we live with it and we think about it and we, you know, um, kind of like bend it backwards and forwards and flip it upside down until, until we absolutely fall in love with our theory. And, um, you know, and I think everybody knows this, but yeah. it's different. We, it can be a theory that, that is based on challenging the state's ability or the United States ability to achieve a conviction. And that, that can be, that's exactly what these burdens of proof are there to protect against is that before anybody can be deprived of their freedom and suffer the consequences, uh, usually lifelong consequences of a conviction and a criminal record. I mean, that's the government doing something to a citizen that would otherwise have the right to live freely, fairly and prosperously in our country. But when before the government can interfere with all that, they better have the ability to do it to the standards that we have set as as a nation, you know, and, and they're and they're expected to be faithful to those standards, right? And many so times they're not. Got, I want to talk go into kind of because this really does raise a Kyle's versus Whitley issue because. Uh, it, you know, it basically stands for the principle that the prosecution can't hide behind the quote unquote unavailability of a written or recorded statement. And if it's something that they have to pursue in order to obtain that now, Kyle's versus Whitley dealt with a different agency that was, that they, that the prosecution knew was in possession of a document or whatever it was. And they said, not, no, we're not, that's not the agency that's prosecuting this. So we don't have to give it to you. You want to try and find it out on your own. So they, they didn't even notify the defense of the existence of this other information. So, so let me run out this hypothetical by you, John, and I'll just like, I know what you're going to say, but let me just uh, lay it <laughs> out for you. Let's say I'm the prosecutor and let's say I interview a witness without anybody being present. So pause there for a second, because okay. trial practice 101, what they teach all prosecutors and defense lawyers is that you don't make yourself a witness in a case. And we should explain, perhaps, why that's the case. Yeah, why don't you? Because investigators and police, when they take statements from people, <clears throat> they typically will um, write up a report. I talked to Mrs. Jones. Mrs. Jones told me she was at this address at this time, and she witnessed this, blah, blah, blah. Okay? And so then Mrs. Jones gets up on the stand and tells a different story. Maybe it's slight. Maybe it's, you know, adds things, maybe whatever. Or maybe she or maybe forgets. she forgets things. And then, and then you will take the report and say, does this refresh your recollection? Or if she sticks with the story, then you call the investigator or the police officer. And he says, oh, I talked to Mrs. Jones, and this is what she told me. And then the jury has to decide which version they're going to believe, right? right. And, so, and so sometimes this is very critical. As in this hypothetical, I believe you are about to posit, and um, uh, so uh, and so that's one of the reasons that everything has to be given to both sides during the course of pretrial preparation, so that there's no surprises. There right. should never be, you know, in civil law, um, the reason that the discovery rules and depositions and interrogatories were all developed was to smooth out and prevent exactly that trial by ambush. And, 
And those didn't start till the 1930s. Right, right. And, and part of that, there's there's some wisdom in that. And it's, you know, nothing ever works the way it should until you develop things and improve on them over time. But one of the major things that happened, as you say, in the 1930s was that the amount of litigation that was going on in courts was increasing. Um, it's another function of our American society is that people sue each other whenever they get mad at each other and, and they want money and stuff. You and that's know. a good thing instead of shooting each other. Right, 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 right. But, <laughs> but the reason behind all of that fair notice and giving the other side a taste, of, you know, a preview of what these issues are, what your investigation has revealed, or in the civil context, depositions, interrogatories, etc., is to... Uh, uh, you know, basically inform and educate both sides on what will happen at trial so that they can potentially avoid trial. Right. 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 I, as a young lawyer, I had a older associate saying, Hey, if a civil case goes to trial, somebody screwed up. Right. Because exactly. the, the discovery process is a trial, right? It's, it's right. slow moving, disjointed trial that takes place over many months, you know, uh, I mean, it's like, you know, here and there everywhere. <laughs> um, and then everybody knows all the facts, right? And they know exactly. No and then they sit down and, and work something out. Or hey, if some take a break, side, Okay. <laughs> we'll right. be back right after these messages. Welcome back. We survived another commercial break and <laughs> we did not disintegrate into dust in the meantime. So. Nope. We are not Ukrainian. Hell no, 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 no. Oh, ow, ow, ow. Too oh, I, but, I, and I also very unfortunate. Yeah. Um, John, you were, you were really about to, we keep setting the stage here. And I know. Okay. Well, let's get into it. It hasn't even come up. So let's get to it. So you have an obligation to turn over stuff. If you talk to a witness, particularly a critical witness, but any witness, and that witness tells you something, that is a statement of a witness. Now, whether you choose to record it in a formal report um, or not, um, or you have notes you took, all of that is discoverable. The notes, the report, and if those don't exist, then the statement itself Right. Obviously, it's better to have it recorded so that there's some precision to it. Um, but you have an obligation, if you're the prosecutor and you did this, to give it to the defense. It's not an optional thing. And moreover, um, if if you took that statement by yourself as the lawyer on the case, you're now off the case. Because you are a witness. Right. So that's the very idea. And this applies to both the defense and the prosecution. When that's we interview correct. a witness, if I'm going to personally speak to somebody who I, I know is going to be a witness at the trial, I don't do it by myself. Because if I'm the only one who's able to either impeach this person or you know refresh their recollection, I can't simultaneously be a litigant in the case because I've got a conflict of interest. I can't call myself as a witness or somebody from my law firm can't call me as a witness really. Correct. Um, so, so here's the thing. And again, in this hypothetical situation, let's say the prosecutor deliberately on purpose doesn't bring any number of people. I mean, you could bring the janitor from the courthouse if you wanted to just to be an extra person to listen to or observe what's going on when you're having individual contact with someone who you know is going to testify. Now, now, first of all, 
just from a strategic standpoint, if you were a prosecutor in that situation, it's a bad idea, not only because you're the one that is uh, becoming a witness to whatever statement may be different, but you're also alone (laughs) with this person Mm -hmm. who, if there is a sudden change, it's going to be awfully suspicious as to why now all of a sudden this witness that you were alone with didn't record, didn't have anybody else around is now saying something that's so much more helpful to the prosecution than what they said before. In other words, it, it smacks of manipulation of the process. So when this happens, you know, and what, what did happen in this hypothetical situation that didn't happen. Um, is that, Isn't that the definition of a hypothetical? Yes, yes. You have, you have to make this decision about, okay, they, they did something on purpose to put the defense at a disadvantage, to have the defense walk them into a trap. So the first question is why? Why would you do that? Um, mm-hmm. And if you're trying to attain some sort of bizarre strategic advantage, when really it shouldn't work that way, why are you doing that? But secondly, um, how on earth can you put yourself in that scenario where you know, but put all those rules aside. Let's say you forgot what the Supreme Court precedent is. You forgot what the rules of ethics are. You forgot what the law is. Just let's talk about common sense. When you, when a prosecutor is standing up there making an opening statement about what's going to be offered in the case, wouldn't it occur to that person that when they're announcing what's going to be happened, that 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 he or she is the only one who knows that? I mean, right. you, you would you would just you would be aware of that, right? And and what is the purpose behind that? How does that achieve a fair trial? And and I have some ideas about why that happens. But go ahead and talk a little bit more about that particular well, scenario. You know, um, just to uh, put some flesh on the bones here, there's a critical witness that supposedly saw a murder or actually didn't see a murder. Um, And it was very, very, very central to the defense in establishing that the client couldn't have done the murder because that person was right at the location and didn't see anybody. Okay. Right. Um, And then the prosecutor, in fact, both prosecutors, two attorneys, no investigators, no police, two attorneys met with this witness at the location. Yeah, not just in the DA's office. <laughs> at the location. But when to the location. And and this witness supposedly, we don't have a report that says this, but the supposedly says, no, I wasn't outside the dead guy's apartment. I was at a different location. Which all was of a uns- sudden, for the first time, all of a we sudden, hear this. This is after years that everybody's relied on the first version. Okay? So, months before a trial, this happened. Never told the defense. Ever. The defense finds out, not from being pulled in the hallway before the trial, hey, by the way, we had talked to this witness, no, nope. the defense. Oh, and also he didn't like uh, send the witness over and to talk to the police so he could memorialize it in a report because then he knew he'd have to get it over. So he intentionally withheld it. The defense finds out during his opening statements. 
So now we're talking about intentional conduct to deprive someone of what they are constitutionally and statutorily entitled to, um, to receive a fair trial. So this is one of the reasons that aggressive defense lawyers are necessary because I think um, uh, a lot of lawyers are asleep at the switch a lot. <laughs> right. And they, and they would not have picked up on this. Yeah. You and well, I, yeah, and our team, obviously, <laughs> obviously, we knew every square centimeter of this case, and we immediately picked up on it. Even the judge picked up on it. So, um, and so that, in my eyes, is misconduct, and it's also cause for him to get off the case. So we'll see how it plays out. But um, you know, the thing, the thing with. Uh, the defense function of our criminal legal system, and I purposely say criminal legal system, not criminal justice system, because justice is one of those amorphous terms that just, you know, everybody uses, and we want justice, you know, every, mm-hmm. like literally everybody, just, whatever that means, in their brain, know. they have their own vision of what it is. So the criminal legal system that we work in and that everybody observes on the news or whatever um, has to be a fair one. It's currently not, but it's aspiring to be. You know, the defense function, the public defender's office is vastly under-resourced. The DAs are vastly over-resourced. Uh, the police are over-resourced. Um, you know, and and then there is no need for any prosecutor to ever have to cheat like this. Right. It's right. just inexcusable well, yeah, and That's immoral. a very good segue into my, my thought process on this. Okay. And it's something that we notice with police officers, prosecutors, sometimes, sometimes judges, although I hope not. But it's this concept that if you look deep inside your own soul somehow and trust your own instincts to the point where, and I've heard this so many times, uh, an officer saying, well, I believed he was guilty. I was convinced myself that this person was guilty. And what we've seen when we do have manipulation of evidence or, you know, part of the whole theory that was in the second Stephen Avery case was that there was a group of people, perhaps including the prosecutor, that just knew in their own minds, in their own estimation of everything, they convinced themselves that this is the guy, he definitely did it, but they're worried that the defense is going to do something tricky or that the jurors aren't going to have enough to agree with their firm belief in guilt and they start messing with the evidence just to make sure. Right. And I see this as one of those situations where, and, and let's be clear, if it had come out the way that the original statement, and, and as the trial started, as far as the defense was concerned, all evidence on that issue that was in the defense's possession pointed in one direction. Yet, the thing that makes it possible for the prosecution to argue an alternative theory is this new information that's only in the brain of the prosecution team and never disclosed to the defense. So why would that happen? Well, probably because a prosecutor would realize that's a big flaw in their case and they're looking for some way to change that because in their hearts and minds, they believe the defendant is guilty and they got to do something to account for this. And 
it looks like they created evidence that didn't exist by putting this notion in the mind of a witness so that it, it, it does strongly appear that way. And, um, uh, you know, and all sorts of oversight agencies can, um, uh, weigh in here, but we can pick that up on the other side. Sure. We'll be right back. We are back with more legal defense and we're going to, um, get back on right on the horse here. Bring it on and, uh, <laughs> um, and talk about, you know, what are the consequences for withholding exculpatory evidence? Well, um, you know, if if it's helpful to the defense, uh, you know, there could be some sort of suppression. You know, if they, if they lied in an affidavit to get a search warrant, well, whatever they seized uh, pursuant to the warrant, they're not going to be able to use. And that's, you know, um, you know, most drug cases involve search warrants and, you know, and that sort of thing. And there's certainly a lot of search warrants in the case where the hypothetical case we're referencing. But... Um, uh, but more importantly, like misconduct can be uh, addressed from two angles. One is the Office of Lawyer Regulation, which is an arm of the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which disciplines errant lawyers. Um, and and then the other is the governor, who can remove um, district attorneys from office. Now, I don't know if that goes to um, just the elected district attorneys or their assistants also. I'm actually not entirely clear on that point. Yeah, I don't um, know either. But I know but, that that happened not too long ago in one of the western counties, a DA that had been elected and didn't go to work for 10 months. Did you hear about that case? Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was another There was another one up north in Lincoln County. Um who, um, uh, outside of the law, he was at a high school basketball game and he didn't like one of the calls from the referee, so he punched <laughs> Oh, yeah. In front of everybody, right? So yeah, the governor yeah. was like, you're gone, yeah. right? I mean, okay. Uh -huh. So whether this constitutes um, uh, a high enough bar for a governor or the OLR to address it in a serious uh, punishing fashion is is, uh, you know, yet to be seen. But um, but those, you know, there there are people that can have their eyes on these issues. And right, it's and not those just are, both of those things are supposed to be deterrent effects in the event that there is that type of misconduct. But, of course, there's more that can happen. And probably more significantly, let's say it's a high-profile, hypothetical, uh, first-degree intentional homicide case that the media is interested in and the public is interested in, and there is presumably a dead person who has a family who's very interested in the outcome of all this, the prosecutor's job, if they have the evidence to support it, is to obtain that conviction. So what can happen, and this is pursuant to Brady versus Maryland and Kyles versus Woodley, is that the court has discretion, the judge has discretion to fashion a remedy. Uh, beyond just what may happen personally to the lawyer involved. And one such remedy is that the prosecution forfeits the right to pursue a conviction. That can happen if it's something that is done in such a way that it is meant to deprive one of their rights. And I've seen, it's it's very, very rare, 
But, you know, 42 USC 1983, otherwise known as the Civil Rights Act of 1871, provides remedies in a civil context for anyone uh, who is a representative of a government agency or part of a government agency who willfully deprives somebody else of their civil rights. And in that context, of course, what we had in mind was the, you know, the very recent um, proclamation of, um, you know, slavery being abolished. But over the years, it's been uh, expanded to include a deprivation of liberty in some way by a government agent that goes against basic rights. So due process is raised here. Um, The right to be free from unnecessary prolonged confinement is also implicated here. And if it was an intentional act that resulted in that, uh, that, you know, there's potential civil liability. But, But people often look at defense lawyers and say, oh, we got them off on a technicality or a loophole. And that's <laughs> the kind of thing where they, they would think this is like, like okay, because the prosecutor like... Constitution quote, as a loophole. Quote, quote unquote, interpreted the um, the law to not require disclosure of this for whatever stupid reason. But let's say that's the rationale. And then the defense properly raises this as a reason for the judge in the interests of justice... Again, we don't know what that means, but let's just say it is whatever you want it to mean. We'll dismiss the case and there's no conviction and there's no solving of the mystery. There's no uh, comfort or solace if, the, if there is any to be had by a verdict one way or the other. And, um, you know, that's a pretty serious implication. And that's supposed to be a deterrent as well. You know, that's supposed to be something that a prosecutor runs the risk of that happening. And in the interest of making sure it doesn't happen, you know, a prosecutor. So one of the things that uh, the Ukrainian people are fighting for and many others have fought for over the centuries is fairness. You know, right. they're fighting for democracy also, but part of democracy is a fair legal system. One that um, people have the actual ability to uh, demonstrate innocence and to, frankly, not be locked up before they even have a chance to address it, you know. Right, right. And, and, and our legal system is out of whack. Yeah. It really is. Even though aspirationally um, there's still a very bright spot in that we do have jury trials. Right. And, and, and really, like, when we talk about democracy, jury trials are, boy, they're the face of democracy. Are they not? Right. I yeah, mean, absolutely. they are – they are average citizens, everyday people who, um, as many judges will remind them, that they have a couple of duties as citizens. One is to pay their taxes, and two is to serve on juries. Other than that, you know, you're pretty much good to go. You know what's you interesting have- about that is that huh? if you don't pay your taxes, then you can also end up losing your right to serve on a jury because you're a felon. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, I do not think that this whole felony, you know, consequences is uh, should like, you should be able to, you should be able to vote if you're in prison in my, yeah. opinion. You well, should not, that, you should not, you should be able to, you know, this whole thing with uh, all these um, collateral from, consequences. It's a leftover you know, from Jim Crow laws. It's, it is, it's a remnant of the, of yeah, the, I know. the rationale behind why we, I know. And, and, that, and that actually, before we go, you know, the, that, 
has been normalized. And this is a term that um, I used in a discussion the other day with a judge, um, how we have normalized so many not good things. So felony status, we've normalized long prison sentences through the war on drugs and the war on crime, you know, interchangeably, you can use those, I guess. And um, we've, you know, we've just accepted that prison is a great model for us to follow. And <laughs> it's just not, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's like, for example, in Portugal, um, in the 80s, they had the same crack problem that the United States had. And well, we chose this carceral, um, uh, massive uh, resourced war on drugs, uh, and they chose treatment. And there are virtually no overdose deaths in Portugal. Now, granted, it's a there much smaller, yeah, and it is a smaller country. But yeah, you're right. They've the government actually has engaged in a successful effort in addressing the problem, and we we certainly have not at all. Period. Yeah. No. Know. And and uh, and so we've normalized and just accepted. Well, yeah, we got to. Uh, if we're going to address a problem, well, let's make the prison sentence longer. And so that's what the legislators do because it's ratcheting it up until it works. Right? It sounds it? great. You know, yeah. it looks good on headlines, and they go well, their chest about what you know how they saved you know the Western civilization and you know and everything. And so I don't know. We just need a re- that often can be made in this context, which I repeatedly do is that politics also plays a huge role in this because don't forget every DA has to be elected oh, and judges and judges at least, are elected. at least in Wisconsin. Right. Right. Um, and I know it's members the of the Supreme court. Yeah. It, oh yeah. Right. Okay. Well here, here's, this is what's interesting. And, and uh, I, we've had this as a topic before, but States that appoint their judges complain that they should have an election States that elect their judges <laughs> claim that they should be appointed because well, either you, way creates its own set of problems. Where do you land on that? I, I prefer, I mean, just because we deal with so many problems and I see politics being involved with everything that happens <clears throat> in our system in Wisconsin, I actually think an appointment process would eliminate some of that. It would create other problems, cronyism and stuff like that, which, that we're trying to avoid. But I think you can address that. Yeah. I, you, you're right about that. and uh, But I think you can address that with um, – you know, bipartisan committees or right. whatever, or legal experts and, you know, and um, people who really kind of know <clears throat> people might, excuse me, push back against that and say, well, you know, <clears throat> if it's democracy, we want to say, and who's going to serve in that third branch. And right. That's a legitimate point. That is. So I don't know. I'm well, we got to go, John. Well, we well, got to wrap it up. Once again, we have been a joy as usual. An hour that flies by at a, you know, breakneck page blink of an eye blink of an eye but uh tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock this has been legal defense with kirk and john have a great weekend have a great one